Thus, we are going to uh, be continuing our way in the gospel according to John, and we will be in chapter 5 uh, this morning. Uh, last week, we saw the royal official uh, come to Jesus in hopes that his son would be healed, right? But Jesus, what did he long to give him? A much greater healing than he had at first desired. He just wanted his son back, but where does it, where's the story end? But with he, that royal official, and his whole household uh, believing. This morning, we're going to see another a healing. Uh, this one's going to have a bit different response, though. But we're going to, again, like if you remember from last week, if you were here, Jesus said some strange things last week. This week, he's going to say some strange things to our ears as well, but ultimately pointing to a much, much greater thing than this man who's going to receive this healing could ever hope. So let's, let's look at the passage, starting in verse 1, chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and There is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me, and Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now the time, now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered him, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word before us this morning. Would you make it come alive? Would we see our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all that he has to offer? And we pray this in his name. Amen. Many of you have probably heard some of these silly questions before that get asked. Silly questions like, why do we drive on parkways and park in driveways? Why are there interstate highways in Hawaii? Why is it that when you're driving, you're looking for an address, we've all done it, you turn down the radio so somehow you can see better? Why do fat chance and slim chance mean the same thing? Why is it hard to remember how to spell the word mnemonic? Some of you got that one. Um, (laughs) If nothing sticks to Teflon, how do they get it to stick to the pan? You've heard some of these. Some of you won't like this one, but if if you tied buttered toast to the back of a cat and dropped it from a height, what would happen? There's a few cat lovers, probably. Have you ever imagined a world with no hypothetical situations? A few people. So yeah, there's these silly questions, right? Our passage this morning, if you're paying attention, I I think it has a little bit of a silly question. Jesus asked this lame man, do you want to be healed? I think, and I hope, that as we look at the passage this morning, we're going to see something very deep behind that question. 
not just what it appears to be on the surface, much like last week with, with Jesus and that royal, that royal official. Jesus' hope for this man in our passage this morning is so much greater than just some physical healing. So our, our passage starts, it's, it's during a feast. We're not, we're not told what feast it is. But Jesus, just like any good Jew, where do you go? You, you go to Jerusalem in the midst of the feast. All of all Israel goes to Jerusalem. And so Jesus finds himself there, but he, he isn't first at the temple in our passage, right? He is somewhere else, verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now this is a, a location actually confirmed to us by Martin. Modern archaeology, which is nice, imagine a place with a couple of pools, and around these pools, um, there are some covered areas, these colonnades, and underneath these colonnades, what is there, verse 3, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, and we got to ask the question, well, why are they there? Why are all these people gathered there? And and to find out that answer, you need to look to verse 4, except for the fact that there is no verse 4. Um, now, depending on your Bible, you may have a footnote, you may have a, a verse in parentheses, right? Maybe you've heard it before, that an angel of the Lord came down at a certain season and stirred up the waters. Um, we have no reason to think that was part of original scripture. It probably made its way in somewhere later. The, the, the earliest and the best manuscripts don't have that verse. So what's going on? Why? Why? Why do we even have that as a footnote in our Bible? Well, it did work its way in later. It seems like scribes, you know, as they're copying the passage over and over again. At some point or another, what happened is they try to write a little note in the side about why in the world there was such a concern about the stirring of the water there. And what they write there is, is what pop people probably believed in that day. In other words, they had this belief that an angel came down and stirred the water. It doesn't mean that an angel actually came down and stirred the water. But it seems like something like that was the belief in the day, and that if you were the first one to jump in, you would get healed. Now, we can't be 100% sure of exactly what's going on there. Why were people healed? Is it some sort of hot springs that maybe just bring some sort of temporary relief? What is the stirring? Is it a release of water from some sort of spring underneath? Were the healings that occurred there, were they just temporary, momentary? Were they permanent? We, we, we just don't know the answer to these questions. But what is interesting in our passage is, is Jesus goes right into this place. And right there we see a setup for, for a little bit of a conflict, if you will. A conflict between this mystical source of healing. A mystical source of healing knows, oh, if you can jump in the waters fast enough, you can be healed. And in contrast to that, what do we have? Jesus stepping in. The one who can really heal. The one who can truly heal enters into the picture and and there's a competition, if you will, between this mystical source of this water and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who can truly heal. There, on that day, we read in verse 5, there was one man there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, we're just told that he's an invalid. We're not told what his affliction was. From the passage later on, we can assume that somehow he's lame, maybe he's paralyzed, just incredibly weak. We don't know. But what we do know is what? This has been going on for a very, very long time. He's suffered this way. 38 years. Sometimes I think we don't kind of quite grasp those kind of numbers. 38 years ago was 1985. If I did my calculations right, I was in second grade. This was quite a number of years ago, right? That this man, he's been like this for a very, 
very long time? Has it been a lifelong illness? We're not, we're not told all the, the difficulties, but what we, we, we do have here is like, is this the most impossible of cases there around those pools? I mean, 38 years, this must be one of the most striking cases there, right? I mean, the life expectancy was barely, or if that, in the day. And he's had this malady, whatever it is, for 38 years. If this man were to be healed, it would be an impossible healing. If this man were to be healed, what should everyone do but what? Be in wonder and awe of such an incredible miracle. Verse 6, we see Jesus sees him lying there. And he knew that he had already been there for a long time. How Jesus knew this, we don't know. Did he ask somebody? Did Holy Spirit speak to him? But he asked the man a question. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? We, we hear this question and we almost want to say, we almost gasp a little bit. And like, Jesus, this is not a question to ask a man who's been lame for 38 years Shepard and I were at uh, DuPont at the Children's Hospital this past week for an appointment, and can you imagine me going up to the, ho- up the hospital tower and going in some of those rooms and going around and asking some of the kids there, do you want to be healed? I can imagine a father or two might punch me right in the face for such a comment. How is this an acceptable question for Jesus to ask? I think we have two choices here. It's either an incredibly stupid and insensitive question or, and you can guess which one I'm going for, or or it's an incredibly profound question, a question with far greater depth than one can even begin to imagine, but perfectly fitting with where we've been in the Gospel of John as, as, as Jesus keeps offering something much greater. Jesus, he picks out this man. This man doesn't come to Jesus. This man doesn't even know, we learn out later, he doesn't even know who Jesus is. Jesus goes looking for him, and he asked him this question, and I think in this question, we need to hear something similar to maybe like Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman that we heard a couple of weeks ago. What did he tell her? He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water we've seen this over and over. Jesus wants to get so, so, so much more. Jesus here, I think, is offering the man something far greater than a physical healing. And this fits with the pattern. You know, Nicodemus, what did he offer to him but new life? The Samaritan woman, this, this living water last week to the royal official, he offers something much greater that ends with his whole household believing. You see, Jesus doesn't just deal in the temporal. He deals and is most concerned with that which is eternal. Jesus is asking this man, do you really, do you truly want complete and total healing in your life? A healing that only Jesus can bring. What does the man say, verse 7? Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. What do we hear here? He doesn't answer Jesus' question, does he? He doesn't say, yes, I want to be healed. Instead, what does he do? He gives the reason why he can't be healed. And here, at least we see the seedbed of something. Where's this man's faith? If there is any faith there, where is it at? It's in this mystical, superstitious water. And yet, who does he have standing right there before him? 
He has the Word made flesh right there in front of him, the one who can bring total and complete healing to him, and he doesn't even see it. His hope is still in mystical water. Now, remember that question. Do you want to be healed? Do you desire to be healed? Jesus is asking the question. Remember, Jesus knew this man. No doubt he knows his heart. He knows this man's real need when he's asking this question, a real need that goes beyond any sort of physical healing. Maybe just maybe this man has found, I mean, this has been 38 years after all. Maybe he's become, become comfortable, comfortable in his malady. Maybe he's found security in his identity as an invalid, as hard as that may be to imagine. Maybe he's even able to make a decent living by doing so. And after all, this is the feast time. I'm sure he's going to bring in quite a bit at this point, one would think. Could it be that after 38 years, that there's a sense in which a healing would be terrifying for him? At the very least, I think this man is conflicted. Does he really want the blessing or not? Does he really want healing or not? Jesus asks him, and he asks you and I this morning, I think the same question, do you want to be healed? Remember, this, this is much deeper than any physical healing of the moment. He wants something deeper. He wants something eternal for this man. Do you want to be healed? Do you want the healing that Jesus can do and Holy Spirit can do in our lives, completely transforming and changing you, molding you more and more into the image of his beloved son? Do you really want that? Do you want that healing that comes when you first believe, but that healing that continues as he transforms you more and more and prepares you more and more for glory? Do you want it? We kind of think about this man and we think for a moment he'd be crazy not to want a healing, right? Do we? Do we want the total healing that Jesus can bring? Do we have other priorities, other things that we'd like to get straight? Okay, Jesus, I would like healing in this area over here, but can you stay out of this one right now because I'm enjoying this area or I need to protect this area right now? I can't let you into this area yet. It would be too costly. Do you really want Jesus to make you whole? Maybe there's some here this morning, in fact, I'm sure that there are. Some who have never even for the first time reached out to Christ, who've never trusted in Him at all, and He asks you too, do you want to be healed? Do you understand your state? Do you understand how you cannot do life with Him? Do you see how life continues to fail you? And everything you put your hope into, it falls away. And what does Jesus say to this man? Verse 8. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed. And he took up his bed and he walked. Do you understand the gravity of this? Here's this man. I mean, he just gets up and he walks. You know what that means? It doesn't mean just a little bit of healing. It means complete healing. It means restoration. It doesn't just mean that, that suddenly he was healed from his maladies, but like his muscles grew back. He didn't need physical therapy. 
got up. And he didn't just get up. He picked up his mat. And he walked. This isn't just a little healing. This is total physical restoration at this point. The man obeys. He does what Jesus calls him to do. He takes up his mat and he walks. And again, I ask you and I the question, do you want to be healed? I'm not thinking here about the physical things like this man. But do you want to be healed in your spirit? In your relationship with him? Do you want sin to die and fall away more and more? I'm reminded of Romans chapter 5. Paul says this. For while we were still weak. That word weak there is the same as invalid in our passage this morning. For while we were yet invalids. For while we were helpless. At that right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While you and I were helpless, like the lame man in our passage, Jesus died for us, the weak, the ungodly, the invalid. And the question for us this morning is, do we want the healing that he can bring in our life? The healing for some that may be that very first step towards him, of embracing him as Savior and Lord? Or that healing that can come to those who believe that so desperately need further healing in their lives as the Spirit does His work, helping you to die more and more to sin and live more and more to righteousness? Do you want this healing? Now, we must confess this isn't necessarily an easy path where, you know, it sounds all nice and easy. Remember, for this man, it was going to be a radical transformation for him. No doubt, difficult days. You know, he'd, he'd learned this for 38 years. What was life going to look like now? How would he make a living? What would he do? I'm reminded of, of Eustace from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the Narnia books. He was a young boy. He was a nasty little boy. Very greedy. As a result, he was turned into a dragon. And over time, his dragonness and his being a dragon actually became kind of painful for him. And he wanted relief. And Aslan calls him to go and get into the water. He might be cleansed up so that that dragonness might be taken away, if you will. He says, first, though, you, you, you must unclothe yourself. And he said, well, I'm a dragon. I don't have any clothes. And he thought, well, maybe I'm like a snake, you know, and you, you can peel away the skin. And so he begins to peel away his skin. And so he peels it away, and then he discovers another nasty, scaly layer underneath and he peels that away and it's another nasty scaly layer underneath that and then finally what does Aslan say to him you'll have to let me undress you Eustace says I was afraid of his claws I can tell you but I was very nearly desperate now so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it and the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it was going to go right to my heart when he began pulling the skin off. It hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. But he continued. And Aslan took off all of his skin. And what happened? He went and he got into the water. He felt the soothe of the new water. And he looks down. And what is he now? But a boy again. Restored. Restored to, to new life. And C.S. Lewis tells us this. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. 
To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy, but he had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of all, I shall not, but most of us, those I shall not notice, the cure had begun. The cure had begun. Aslan brought healing to this boy. It wasn't necessarily an easy healing. It wasn't a painless healing. Jesus is offering this to this man. A healing far, far deeper than just the physical and the momentary of this life. So Jesus heals him. Now this sets us up for a controversy in our passage. We're going to continue on talking about it next week. Thankfully, I don't have to talk about all the details this morning. But we learn in verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath day and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. You understand how sick those words are? Man who's been lame for 38 years. No doubt these Jewish people, they knew who him, they knew this guy, they knew who he was. They'd likely given money to him multiple times. I mean, 38 years, he was, must have been well known. And they see him healed, they see him up and walking. Maybe they even saw him that morning at Bethesda. And what do they do? They cry, Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. What are you doing? You're not allowed to pick up your mat on the Sabbath. What's going on here? At this point, they're, they're not concerned about Jesus doing a miracle on the Sabbath. Their concern is what? That this guy has violated the fourth commandment by what? By picking up his mat. And what were they looking to? They were, they were looking to their law. So you, you see what the Jewish people did? They, what they did is they went and they created long lists of laws surrounding the Ten Commandments. And so for the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, they had a long, long list of all the things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And something called the Mishnah. And, and so they, they, they had 40 minus 1. So they had 39 things listed out that you cannot do. Do you know what 39 was? It was forbidden. He who transports an object from one domain to another. They see this man, lame for 38 years. They should have been rejoicing. They should have been jumping for joy as to what is taking place here. And what do they do? They cry Sabbath. Confronted with 38 years and an incredible healing. And this extra biblical man-made law. A law that was just created to, okay, here's the line. No daily toil on, on the Lord's day. So they create all these laws to make sure nobody even gets close to it. And what are they concerned with? They're concerned with the man-made law. You see, I think these men, they were looking for healing too. And they thought the law could somehow bring it. That the law could, could somehow make them right with God. And so they created something that's doable. They had their Sabbath checklist. And they could go down, they could check every single box because we did not do any of those things today. But of course, what did they fail to do but check their heart? We look at it and we wonder, how could they have missed it? How could they have missed the fulfillment of the words of Isaiah about the day of the Lord, that then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped? 
Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. How did they miss it? How did they not see it? And let's be honest, though. This legalism that we see here in these Jewish leaders, we struggle with it too. It whispers into your ear, doesn't it? If you'll just, Steve, Steve, if you'll just, you can fill in the blank. Then God will have to accept you. Then you'll be made right with God. Then things will be okay if you're just a good little boy or a good little girl. Then you'll be okay. Right? Isn't that what it says? If I just do this, if I, if, I, if I just get up early enough in the morning and read my Bible, then he'll have to be okay with me today, right? Or if I go and I, I, I serve that person, then he'll have to be okay with me, right? He'll have to accept me. He'll have to love me. We struggle with this too. Looking to the law for healing. Thinking somehow that it can make us better or... What it also does is it whispers into our ears. It says, look at that person. Look at that person over there. Sinner. And we point at them and their sin. And can we confess for a moment that for a moment we feel better when we do that? But it's sad the reason that we feel better. Because the focus is off of ourselves. Off of our own shame of our own sin. We fail to look at ourselves and, and who are we? We heard it a moment ago in Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, for while we were still invalids, for, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now how is this man going to respond? How does he respond? Jesus has healed him. What does he say? Verse 11, Remember responding to the Jewish leaders and their questioning of him, what does he say? The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. You hear it? He's pointing. Sounds a whole lot like Adam, doesn't it? The woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Oh, how dangerous it is to point elsewhere. And we should be pointing at ourselves and seeing ourselves. But the wonder is this kind of blame-shifting thing that we do whenever, whenever we start to feel guilt heaped upon us when, we, when we're actually scared that we actually do deserve blame. What do we do? We, we point elsewhere. We try to look elsewhere. Oh, how we shouldn't do that. How we should understand and comprehend that Christ has taken the blame for us. Isn't that what we've read now several times from Romans? That he died at the right time for the ungodly? Now their concern changes, doesn't it? The Jewish leaders, what do they say? Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? It's like their spidey senses go off. For a minute there, they were concerned with this man. Totally, suddenly it totally shifts. Well, it's, it's kind of bad that this man is carrying his mat on the Sabbath, but if there's somebody out there who's telling other people that they're allowed to pick up their mat and walk, we got to go get this guy. And again, what are they doing? Totally missing. Totally missing this incredible miracle that's right before them. 
that a man of 38 years has been healed. Now this man, what do we see? Verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not who, who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. I don't want to paint this guy in too bad of a light. But in the preceding passages in John, we're, we're told kind of glowing things about people and their response to Jesus. This guy, we're, we're not really, we're not given any sort of validation on his response at all. We're about to talk about a negative validation in a moment, which isn't good. But is it, maybe it was just so crowded, but he's totally missed Jesus. He doesn't know who he is. He hasn't even asked anybody, who was that? Did you, get, did you see who it was? He hasn't gone to find him. In fact, what do we see? Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. He doesn't go looking. We don't see any evidence that he goes looking for Jesus, but, but Jesus continues to pursue him. And why does he continue to pursue him? Because he is offering to him true healing. And he wants him to have true and complete healing. And so Jesus says words, words that, again, they're, they're difficult to hear. See, you are well. This is good news. See, physically, you're, you're healed. You're able to walk. You're able to pick up your mat. But then Jesus says, then no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Those are tough words, aren't they? Those aren't the next words you're expecting to flow from Jesus' mouth. What Jesus is wanting in this man is a total spiritual reformation in his life, a total change. Now, he is not here, and I want to make sure this is clear. I don't think here Jesus is not trying to make a connection between suffering or, or, or disability and a particular sin. That's not what's going on here. In fact, in, in John chapter 9, when we get there, we're going to see almost a twin story, that of the healing of the blind man. Now, the response there is going to be much different, but you can see a lot of similarities in the stories. And what does Jesus say there? Verse 3, chapter 9, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed now, this doesn't mean that sin, though, can't and doesn't cause tremendous amounts of suffering in our life, doesn't it? We can look to ourselves and we can just see in our life how we've caused all sorts of ruckus for ourselves, haven't we? Jesus approaches this man. And what he's saying to him is, you're not completely healed yet. And I don't think you know that. I don't think you understand that, but you are not completely healed yet. Now, from the outside, you could look at the man and you say, hey, looks great. But Jesus, Jesus says, sin no more. What is this sin? I can't help but believe this sin is unbelief of not now trusting in Jesus Christ because what does Jesus connect it with? What does he say? Sin no more that what? That nothing may, worse may happen to you. What could be worse? This man has just experienced 38 years of suffering. What could be worse? Eternal suffering. I don't know what else it could be. Eternal suffering. For lack of faith. You see, he's been healed, but not fully. He has a physical healing, but he so desperately needs a spiritual, he needs an eternal healing. Jesus says to him, 
Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. John Newton, guy who wrote Amazing Grace and former slave trader. In one of his letters, he writes to a friend, a friend who evidently he had spent a lot of times sharing the gospel with. This friend had become deathly ill. Okay, it seemed like death was on its way, but somehow, miraculously, he's restored to health. Newton writes to his friend, I'll share a little bit of it with you. He says, I, I suppose you will receive many congratulations on your recovery. So I'm sure you're going to receive a lot of letters saying, oh, it's so great that you're better. He says, I don't know if you're going to receive my letter quite the same as you're going to receive theirs. He says, you have been my friend upon the brink, the very edge of an eternal state. You've been on the very edge, that, that, prefetis, prefis, that precipice, is that the right word? Um, right there before eternal life or eternal death. You've been right there between heaven and hell. But God has restored you back to this world again. Did you meet with or, or have you brought back nothing new? Did nothing occur to stop or to turn your usual train of thought? Are you not changed? Are you not transformed as a result of this malady? If you answer me, yes, all things are just as they were formerly, the difference being between sickness and health only accepted. I'm at a loss how to reply. I can only sigh and wonder. He's pleading with his friend. What is he pleading? Don't waste your sickness. Don't waste it. Don't waste your suffering. He closes saying, I've delivered my own soul by faithfully warning you. I've told you over and over about the gospel about what Jesus did, how he came, and how he has asked you, do you want me to heal you? And over again, over again, you've rejected him. He closes saying this, why then? You must abide the consequences. But assuredly, sooner or later, God will meet you. My hearty daily prayer is that there may be in the way of mercy and that you may be added to the number of the trophies of his invincible grace. Do you waste your suffering? Do you waste your sickness and your illness? Do you waste the difficulties of this life? Jesus is, is telling this man, don't waste those 38 years, please. Don't continue in sin. Don't continue in unbelief or something worse will happen to you. And how's the man respond? Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Again, John doesn't give us his, his final statement on what he thinks about this man. Is he going to tell them, oh, you'll never believe it was Jesus? This, we don't get that if that's what it is. Sure seems a little bit more like the guy may be tattling on Jesus. Again, pointing away from himself. But here's the thing. The point this morning is not what this man does and how he responds. But 
what Jesus calls this man to do, what he calls you and I to do. He calls us to believe that he truly can heal us. What is his response? Verse 6, what, what is our response to, to, to what his question before us? Do you want to be healed? Do you want the true spiritual healing that only Jesus can bring? Being made fully and completely right with him. Do you want that? For while we were still weak, for while we were invalids, for while we were helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He, he, he died so that we might have true healing. He died so that all who would believe and trust in Him could have true and real and full and eternal life. Jesus, I think in a sense, asked us all this morning, do you want that healing? How will you respond? Will you respond as this man did initially, trusting in mystical water? Trusting in the stuff of this world to somehow save and rescue you? Or you trust this morning in the only one who can save, the only one who does save. For some of you, maybe this is and will be the very first time you've ever responded to him. For others of us, hopefully, we've been brought again, we've been brought back to the foot of the cross reminded of our desperate need of him, that it's while we are still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And he alone, he alone can, can heal the darkest sorrows of your soul, the things that plague you, the things that keep you up at night, the things that you try to avoid the things that you run from, the things that we all struggle with, He alone is the one that can bring true healing. Do you believe it? Do you want to be healed? Let's pray. Oh, Father, how thankful we are this day for our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his work on our behalf while we were helpless. We thank you for his work to heal our souls, to bring us from death to life. Would you help us to trust more and more in our Savior, Jesus Christ? Would you help us to allow you into the, the darkest corners of our hearts? Those places that we sometimes try to keep from you, which is just silly as though you don't know. And will we trust you to bring full healing? Certainly full healing that's not going to come this side of glory. But would you help us to trust that you do come even today to bring new life to us? We thank you this morning.
our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the one who became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And we pray this all in his name, his matchless name, Jesus Christ. Amen.